Hi, I'm Jack Cush with Room Now. I'm here at RWCS 2019 in Wailea, Maui. Uh, great meeting, great faculty. Uh, we just had our first morning. Uh, we led off the meeting, Artie Kavanaugh and myself, with an update in RA, what we thought was exciting or interesting from uh, recent meetings and what was published in the last year. I'm going to cover three things, that being prednisone, seropositivity, and cardiovascular issues. Uh, the first, prednisone, the Samira study uh, authored by Gerd Burmester and Frank Bucharek looked at the value of being on continuous low-dose prednisone. Uh, these are RA patients who are on conventional or biologic DMARDs, uh, and they're either on 5 milligrams of prednisone and they're in remission, uh, and they continue half the group on the 5 milligrams of prednisone, and the other half, they have a tapered withdrawal of steroid. Uh, and they look at the outcomes after 24 weeks. Well, there's positives and negatives to this. Clearly, patients who stayed on the five milligrams of prednisone did better. Uh, and it's significantly better, you look at the graphs, it's like this and this, and, uh, and it looks like, well, I should probably continue the five milligrams of prednisone. Uh, and the side effects and toxicities were a little bit more when you were on the prednisone versus off the prednisone, but it wasn't very significant. But remember, this is only 24 weeks. What would have happened if that was taken out for two years or three years? Uh, what was seen, however, was that two-thirds of patients who they tried to withdraw the steroids on actually did very well and were able to withdraw and stay off the steroid. Uh, when you look at, again, the continuous group, they had um, 14 flares. When they look at the steroid withdrawal group, they had 34 flares. So there's a price to pay in getting off steroids, but the benefit is that two-thirds of patients can get off. Uh, and then there's a long-term consequences. So, again, maybe the story really has to do with the activity of the patient. The patient has really severe disease, low-dose prednisone might have to be part of your long-term regimen. On the other hand, if you're doing very well with therapy, why not try to get to no steroids in two-thirds of the patients, even risking the chance of flares in some. Uh, a really interesting paper could spurn a lot of discussion. The second issue is seropositivity. That we presented a few different things about seropositivity. One was clearly the benefit, the, the hazards of the titer of CCP. Um, the authors on this particular paper looked at um, low titers of CCP versus medium versus high, and these were in patients who were just CCP positive but did not yet have rheumatoid arthritis. Clearly, medium and high levels of CCP was associated with significantly increased risk of developing RA in, I think it was one year or two years. Uh, and the high titer ones were, were 50, more than 50% developed rheumatoid arthritis. I think that tells you a lot, especially when considering what the seropositivity means in someone with preclinical RA not yet diagnosed. Another interesting abstract looked at the um, whether you go positive or negative on rheumatoid factor or CCP. This is a large study, the IMPROVE study, that looked at a lot of different uh, therapies, a lot of different patients, and basically showed that with therapy, patients' rheumatoid factor and CCP will usually decline. So that the seropositivity is a function of how much inflammation you have. However, even though it does come down, it does not correlate with clinical measures of activity. ULAR, good responses, other types of responses, et cetera. So you really can't use it as an outcome or biomarker and, and whatnot. And likewise, they showed that when people flared, their rheumatoid factor or CCP usually rose. So again, there's a real limitation to this seropositive issue as far as either choosing therapy or monitoring therapy, but it is an expectation of therapy. And lastly, cardiovascular issues. We showed a lot of different slides showing what you all know. 
Methotrexate clearly reduces cardiovascular risk, cardiovascular death. TNF inhibitors and other biologics further add to that reduction, and that's all well and good. The question is, with those great therapies, especially methotrexate or biologics, can that be applied to patients who don't have rheumatoid arthritis, patients at high risk for cardiovascular endpoints like MI and stroke and whatnot? Um, so these are patients who, cardi cardiac patients, no arthritis, uh, and two major studies we reviewed. One was the Canto study, and the second was the CERT study. Cantos was a study of canakinumab, the IL-1 inhibitor, where patients who were at cardiovascular high risk were enrolled, and they had to have a high CRP going in. The Canto study was great. It showed that there was a significant reduction in cardiovascular events and cardiovascular deaths, but there was these additional things that were really astounding. There was less gout attacks in people that were on chronic IL-1. There was um, less need for orthopedic and, uh, and, and hip and knee surgery and joint replacement. And lastly, there was less cancer, especially lung cancer, in the patients who were taking the IL-1 inhibitor. However, the real study everybody was waiting for was the CERT study. Um, both of these were authored by Paul Ritker out of Harvard. Uh, the CERT study looked at methotrexate as the intervention. The studies were roughly the same in their design, who got in, what the endpoints were, but the CERT study, the methotrexate study, did not require a high CRP going in. And as such, that study failed. It was actually prematurely uh, halted. They had uh, equal number of cardiovascular endpoints uh, with either those that are on placebo or those that are on methotrexate. And that study has basically killed the idea of control of inflammation in cardiovascular patients at high risk outside the arthritis clinic. We will continue to use these therapies in our, our rheumatology clinics, but amongst cardiologists, the talk is that didn't, that didn't really work. And oh, by the way, the Canto study, which was so successful, went in front of the FDA and was re denied by the FDA to have cardiovascular risk as an indication for the use of the IL-1 inhibitor. Now they're negotiating and maybe that'll come out differently in the future, but it doesn't look good for treating inflammation to manage the inflammatory component that goes along with cardiovascular disease. We certainly know in RA there's an inflammatory component. We're managing it in a sort of bystander way and using it as a way to push therapy. So anyway, these are, this was just a small, small sampling. Artie will give you the rest. Um, check out the videos for RWCS on Room Now and rwcs.com. Hi, I'm George Martin. I'm here at uh, Rheumatology Winter Clinical Symposia on the beautiful island of Maui where I practice dermatology. And uh, for today's uh, session, I covered what's new in dermatology for the rheumatologist. I started off with talking about atopic dermatitis and you know, dupilumab, a monoclonal antibody directed against the IL-4 alpha receptor, uh, really knocks out two cytokines, IL-4 and IL-13, which are primary, the primary drivers for atopic dermatitis. And the data is very strong and it's been out in practice and a total game changer uh, in an arena where moderate to severe atopic dermatitis has historically been treated with cyclosporine, methotrexate, azathioprine, and, and the like. And so uh, we're very excited to have dupilumab on board, but Given the science behind dupilumab and its efficacy, there is a whole host of monoclonal antibodies now entering the atopic dermatitis treatment spectrum. Uh, they, uh, they are the IL-13 monoclonal antibodies, trailocizumab and lipocizumab, and both of them have demonstrated significant uh, improvement in, in moderate to severe atopic dermatitis. Uh, the anti-IL-31 uh, monoclonal antibody that's directed against itch is also appears to be very effective uh, in treating atopic dermatitis and there's a whole host of monoclonal antibodies coming forth 
uh, and, and that includes IL-5 and IL-33 monoclonal antibodies. Uh, also of interest is the impact of uh, JAK inhibitors uh, in, for the treatment of atopic dermatitis. Uh, it turns out that uh, the uh, JAK1 inhibitors uh, are performing almost as well as the monoclonal antibodies for the treatment of uh, atopic dermatitis. And uh, baricitinib uh, is certainly an effective uh, agent uh, for the treatment of atopic dermatitis, and, and uh, that along with other uh, JAK1s uh, will make its way to market. Uh, topically, tapinarov, uh, aryl carbon uh, hydrolase uh, receptor uh, agonist, uh, has shown very nice efficacy and is an alternative um, to uh, topical steroids, and it's making its way into phase three. Uh, on the uh, psoriasis front, uh, we're about ready to receive rizinkizumab, a uh, very potent anti-IL-23 inhibitor, uh, where PASI-90 scores uh, are up in the 75% range and nearly half the patients get complete clearance. Uh, this is the new anti-IL-23 monoclonal antibody that's set to make its way into market in April. Um, and in addition, we have another IL-23 blocker that is in market just recently approved, and that's uh, uh, tildrakizumab, also called Illumia, and uh, it's dosed at 100 milligrams at week zero and four and then every 12 weeks with very nice uh, efficacy and uh, long-term maintenance. Um, Simsia, uh, sertilizumab just was approved uh, in May yeah, for the treatment of psoriasis. Uh, the effective dose is a 400 milligram every two week dose. And uh, because of its unique structure uh, and, its, uh, and its lack of penetration uh, through the uh, placenta and into breast milk, make it a really nice choice for women of childbearing years. Those are women between the ages of 15 and 35, uh, and that's an age group that psoriasis oftentimes presents. So that's my summary on the atopic dermatitis and psoriasis uh, medley of what we covered at uh, RWCS this year. Hope you'll join us next year in 2020. Hey, I'm Jack Cush. I'm here at RWCS in Maui, 2019. Great meeting. I want to tell you about my debate with Dr. Roy Fleischman. Those, Roy and I have been calling it the great debate, trying to drum up some interest. Um, it wasn't actually billed as such. Um, we had a good crowd. The topic of the debate was, should pre-RA, should pre-clinical rheumatoid arthritis patients, should they be treated? Meaning that if you identify them, should you put them on a DMARD? And as you know, this is a growing area of research interest that uh, we know for many years that long before the diagnosis of RA is achieved, that patients can have autoantibodies going back 10 years earlier that would antecede the onset of disease. And uh, this has led to a whole new area of investigation, preclinical RA. You start out with someone who's at risk, genetically at risk, having a shared epitope or being homozygous for the shared epitope, that along the way they develop autoimmunity, usually as a result of environmental triggers like smoking, obesity, etc. And then the autoimmunity they get is manifest as autoantibodies, CCP, rheumatoid factor, uh, CAR-P antibodies. These are all present as far as 10, 15 years before the onset of disease. The interesting thing is that as they get closer to their diagnosis date or the onset of, of synovitis, bilateral symmetric synovitis, they get more and more of these autoantibodies. 
So you know that early RA patients, patients who are diagnosed, often only are going to be rheumatoid factor positive in 40 to 60% of the time. But that is over time, that will go up even further. So it is a continuum of autoantibody uh, expansion, epitope spreading, that will lead to more autoantibodies. And so the idea here is that, uh, is it a defined point that you need to be worried about or you need to be worried about them beforehand? I made the case in favor of in fact, I was forced to take this position, um, that you should treat patients uh, at the preclinical RA stage. So I wanted to start out with what's the defini definition of preclinical RA. Uh, and there's two that were reviewed in this session. One is a first-degree relative of someone who has a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis who is CCP positive and has arthralgias. That would be one definition. Uh, second one that Roy also reminded the audience was someone who has one of these rheumatoid factor, rheumatoid-like autoantibodies along with symptoms. Now again, either definition cannot actually achieve old 87 uh, criteria for uh, rheumatoid arthritis or the newer 2010 ACR slash ULAR criteria for the diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis. So the, uh, the idea is that again, they ha they're sort of set up. Well, what the data I showed sh showed that if you're just seropositive, um, the risk of developing future inflammatory arthritis and rheumatoid arthritis ranges from roughly 20 to as high as 70%. So there is some risk there. The numbers go up when you start adding in other risk factors, being double positive for CCP and rheumatoid factor, or being found in a secondary clinic, like a rheumatologist clinic, as opposed to uh, a general health fair screen. Uh, and, you know, obviously there are other things, including the environmental and lifestyle triggers that can further add to that risk. Being first degree relative adds to that risk. But just based on the autoantibodies alone, it ranges, and probably it's around maybe a 30% would might be the average risk. And I think that's something very important and worth knowing. But is that enough to make you treat? And the whole issue here is it's an opportunity for prevention. And that was my tact, get people to think if we treat during this window, this true window of opportunity, that in fact, that you may be able to affect the outcomes. The evidence of that, however, isn't so good because the trials aren't so good. There's a number of trials done in steroids, um, in dexamethasone, high-dose steroids, where it didn't work. You know, short-term uh, improvement, but no one got any long-term protection or no deterrent from getting rheumatoid arthritis. There's the PROMP trial where they use methotrexate in undifferentiated arthritis, which is not the same. Those patients are a little further along the continuum. Again, the continuum starts with genetics over here, then uh, environmental triggers and autoimmunity, then early undifferentiated disease, and over here you get rheumatoid arthritis. So uh, undifferentiated patients don't, not meeting rheumatoid uh, arthritis criteria, uh, they were given methotrexate, and early results look good, later results, long-term results didn't look good at all. But there were people in that subgroup who did benefit from getting methotrexate even at the pre-diagnostic stage. Um, in the end, uh, Roy showed data that wasn't too, wasn't too impressive, the steroid data, the PROMP data, the Prairie study, uh, a few others. Again, the studies weren't very good, but the studies are limited by short duration of exposure. Prairie study was a study of rituximab being given one infusion, 1,000 milligrams, and following people out for 30 months. It actually did forestall the development of rheumatoid arthritis. Um, it took 16.5 months versus 11.5 in those who got placebo. Uh, there was fewer cases of rheumatoid arthritis, you know, 34 versus 40. So the numbers, the, the effects were not great, great here, but they got suboptimal therapy. The same was seen with six months of therapy with abatacept, 
where, again, the, the long-term benefits were little, but they only got six months of abatacept. So uh, there are more studies that are in uh, progress right now, and maybe we'll know more. In the end, we had a vote. Uh, Roy taking the position, showing the, the, the negative view by the crappy data that, that we both were using, um, seemed to sway the audience into thinking, this is not um, uh, something you should be doing. Um, I tried to make the case that, um, that I was right, and people just had a hard time understanding my, my masterful presentation. Um, but in the end, I think it was a good discussion. We had a lot of questions from the audience. I would tell you uh, that the, the takeaway from this should be the following. The people you need to worry about who are not yet diagnosed with rheumatoid arthritis are the following. Those who are double positive for RF and CCP, a high, high percentage of those people are going to get rheumatoid arthritis. And I'm saying greater than 250 CCP, many hundreds, hundreds or thousands as far as international units of rheumatoid factor. People who have uh, seropositivity and who are first degree relatives, that's also a group that you need to worry about. And of course, people who have one joint becomes two, becomes three, becomes four, you're already on the way to making a diagnosis of rheumatoid arthritis and how you intercede is gonna be up to you. That's it from RWCS. Tune in for more interesting videos from this great conference. Hi, I'm Dr. Marty Bergman. I'm here in Maui at the RWCS meeting. I just finished talking about burnout and uh, what you can or can't do about it. Uh, burnout's a serious problem. It's been estimated that 54% of physicians are experiencing burnout, and this is having a significant impact on healthcare. Uh, there's a high rate of, of depression, high rate of drug and alcohol abuse, and there's a three to five time increase rate of suicide among physicians, mostly attributable to burnout. Uh, there are many causes of burnout. It goes from the personality of who we are, who we, that, the people that go into medicine. We have a certain personality. We tend to be individualistic. We tend to be very uh, altruistic, and we tend to try to do our best at all times. But that's not always the best way for us to be. There are also institutional issues, too much burden on the, patient, on the physician, too much documentation with EMR and the like, loss of autonomy with pre-certifications, not having to choose. We have increased risk, or what's called asymmetrical risks, where we, when we succeed, there's very little reward. When we fail, there's major repercussions. So what can we do about it to, make, uh, to, to end this problem? Well, there's no one solution. But I think it starts with us, ourselves. You should spend a lot of time in the beginning of your career. You should start telling yourself, what is it that I want out of my career? Do I want advancement? Do I want family? Do I want free time? Do I want no free time? and come up with something that is satisfying to you. Recognize that you don't have to spend a lot of time on yourself. Studies have shown that if you spend at, at least 20% of your time while working doing something that you find clinically meaningful, that's all it takes to significantly reduce burnout. But I think we also have to involve our institutions. Uh, our patients are suffering, but our institutions are suffering. So the same people who are asking us to do more and more with less and less we have to make it clear to them that they're suffering. There's less productivity. There's less 
income. There's less patient satisfaction. They're losing services. So it's not only us. It's not only the physicians that are suffering. It's not only the patients who are suffering because of increased medical errors, lack of satisfaction, depersonalization, being treated like meat rather than a real person. It's also an institution. So I think any solution that comes is not going to come from one group. It's going to come from all of us. And I think some of that may also be a role for organized medicine. So it's a major problem. I think we have to face it. You can't pick up a journal today or pick up anything today and not see it. But I really think this is something that we have to face. So thank you for your attention. If you have any more in, uh, interest in this, please go to Room Now. And uh, thank you for listening. And once again, greetings from sunny Maui. Have a good day. Hello, I'm Paul Emery. I've just given a lecture at RWCS, which is about the optimal use of imaging. Uh, the take-home message from that is that because joint counts, joint examinations are less accurate at the most critical time points, which are pres presentation of disease and at remission, we tend to use imaging a lot in those points. And they are the, the time points when the most critical decisions these days are being made. I also try to make the point that you shouldn't image everybody, but you should consider that if imaging is going to change your management or the findings of imaging are going to change your management, then you should undertake it. But if they are not, it's an unnecessary examination. Also made the point that uh, MR can do things that ultrasound can't, particularly in very early disease, identifying the sites of lesions. And of course, imaging can be very helpful in SPA. If you'd like to have further information about this, please go to the website.